You are listening to Hear Her Sports, a podcast for active, adventurous women who love hearing stories from other active, adventurous women. I'm your host, Elizabeth Emery. In every episode, I introduce a female athlete or women in sport through a conversation about who they are and the terrific work they're doing. This week, Joanne Lannon is here to talk about her latest book, Who Let Them In? Pathbreaking Women in Sports Journalism. She has written three other books on women in sports, including Finding a Way to Play, covering the history of women's basketball. As regular listeners know, I love to ask about the importance of women's sports history, as I did with Kelsey Ervick, the author of the graphic memoir, The Keeper, in episode 132. Joanne is certainly an expert in the history of women's basketball and women in sports journalism, so those are a focus of the conversation. We talk about how tough these pioneers were and everything they went through just to do what they wanted to do. We also talk about the media, trouble men have with women's voices, and all the hope Joanne has for the future and why she has that hope. I tend to get grumpy about a lot of this stuff, so thank you, Joanne, for pointing out how strong young women in sports are these days and also the community they're able to build to support one another. I have a lot to say about the topics that came up in the episode, but we'll save those for the newsletter that goes out every other week between episodes. Sign up to get that email at hearhersports.com. As a note, Joanne and I spoke in early September, well before the changes at Twitter, so it's funny she mentions the platform unsympathetically a couple of times. And now, on to the show with Joanne Lannon. Joanne Lannon wrote for the Portland Press-Herald, Maine Sunday Telegram in Portland, Maine, for 22 years, where she was the first female sports reporter. Who Let Them In is Joanne's fourth book about women in sports. Joanne is a retired English and journalism teacher, and she still plays basketball in an over-50 league. She lives in Portland, Maine area with her husband, Rick, and their two rescue pups. Well, Joanne, hello. It is great to have you on the podcast. Well, it's great to be here, Elizabeth. And I love that you're still playing basketball. Have you always played? Well, I played in high school and college, and then I didn't, I played pickup a little bit after college, but um, not too much because I was getting into teaching and coaching. I coached basketball at the first high school where I taught, and I've coached off and on since then. When I turned 50 is when I really got back into playing because there's a really excellent 50-plus league in southern Maine that I've been a part of for, well, Okay, 20 years. <laughs> what, what, what's the league like? How many are there of you? Well, okay, it's three-on-three three basketball. Okay. Um, and we week to week, we just play pickup, but we do separate into age groups. There's a 50-plus team, a 55-plus team, a 60, 70, 65, and, and 70. And, and we compete in tournaments from time to time. We'll be going to Pittsburgh next July for the National Senior Games, um, which are held every two years. Are you competitive? <laughs> I would say I'm very competitive. I don't think I ever let my son beat me at Uno or, you know, whatever game we're playing. Um, philosophically, I guess I didn't think it was a good idea for just to let him win. <laughs> but, but it also was because of something deep inside of me. <laughs> Has sort of your competitive edge changed as you've aged? Oh, not at all. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. I mean, I, I think I take losing a little better, but I certainly still try as hard to win as I ever did. 
Do you train other than doing the basketball? You know, I do, I do lift weights. People my age should be lifting weights, so I do that. And I actually haven't been on my bicycle all summer, which is pretty interesting in a way. But, um, but yeah, I do try to stay active. The pups keep me active, certainly. Right. Well, we should probably get to uh, journalism. Okay. <laughs> so how did you get started in sports journalism? Well, it was a kind of a roundabout thing because, you know, back when I was growing up, there were no such things as women sports writers. Well, actually there were, but I didn't know about them because there was no internet. You know, being a big sports player and fan, uh, grew up in the Boston area and, you know, just loved the Celtics of the 60s and 70s and, and the Red Sox, even though those teams weren't that great. I was just always either playing or reading about or watching sports, but I didn't know I could write about it. So I kind of decided, well, maybe I can just, you know, be an English teacher and coach. That seemed to be the best way to marry those two interests. So I did that for five years, and then I started working for a weekly newspaper in, in the town where I was teaching and coaching. That became a full-time job until the paper folded. Then I decided, well, it took me about two seconds to decide whether or not to go back to teaching. Uh, instead, I started sending out resumes, and the Portland Press-Herald came calling. So your journalism started just with news. I don't mean just, but it started yeah, yeah, with yeah. news. It didn't start with the sports. It did start with news, although I did write a, a weekly sports column for the oh. weekly paper. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I think what I'm fascinated by is, you know, as you mentioned, there weren't a lot of women or, if, or any sports journalists women. So how did you realize that that was an option for you? Um, well, I, you know, I, I grew up in the Boston area, so I was reading the Boston Globe, and, you know, suddenly one day Leslie Visser's name started appearing. Mm. I think that was in 1974, and so that obviously planted the seed. I loved her writing. I actually used to use some of her stories in my English classes, journalism classes, and um, I just, you know, finally I realized, hey, this is maybe something I could do. Yeah, I'm always fascinated by women who are able to figure out how to get into a field without having role models. I know. Yeah. That's what's amazing to me about the early pioneers, you know, that they really didn't, that they were, they were really <laughs> wandering in the wilderness for a while there. But they had help also, I think. A lot of them did have mentors, and I certainly had some good mentors when I first started out. Mm -hmm. I mean, well, you know, male mentors. Right, right. Uh, what were some really memorable interviews or, or stories that you did? Um, I think probably, well, for different reasons, there were memorable interviews. I interviewed Red Auerbach. The, well, he wasn't coach of the Boston Celtics at the time. He had actually retired, so he was the GM and the president. Um, my editor sent me down to interview him, and I don't actually remember why now, but boy, was that intimidating at first because I had grown up, you know, watching him yelling at referees and smoking on his victory cigar and all that. When I walked into his office, he said, you know, what can you ask me that nobody's ever asked me before? And taken aback a little bit, uh, my heart was pounding, but I noticed that there was a whole wall of letter openers behind him. So I asked him about his collection, and he seemed pretty pleased about that, and, and we had a great interview after that. So that was memorable 
in the fact that I kind of got over my being intimidated and actually made a good interview out of it. Probably the most memorable interview I had was with Travis Roy. He grew up in Maine. He got a scholarship to Boston University, and in the within, well, not even a half a minute into his first shift on the ice uh, as a hockey player, he hit the boards and, and was paralyzed. Um, so after his, he, he left school for a year, but he came back, and I went to BU to interview him, and I spent the day with him, and it was just an amazing day. He's, he's since deceased pretty recently, but I just was amazed at his positive spirit and, and just the things he told me, the intimate details about, I remember, I remember asking him, you know, what do you miss most when you're sitting in a classroom during a lecture? And he said, I really miss doodling. <laughs> <laughs> and I just thought that was, that was just great. Yeah. What kind of stories do you like to tell? You know, I like to tell the kinds of stories that are in this book and that are also in my um, other basketball book, Finding a Way to Play. Mm -hmm. They're stories about people who, well, they're either pioneers because they're, the, they're among the first, or they are struggling in some way just to find a way to do what they love to do. Well, let's get to the book. Why did you decide to write it? Well... I had finished the basketball book I just mentioned, Finding a Way to Play. I really enjoyed it because I was interviewing, like I said, women who had struggled against various barriers. And I was kind of looking for another idea. And I thought, well, maybe I could write about women in sports journalism. Not necessarily because I had been one, and yet that was part of the impetus because I only stayed in sports for three years. I left for the newsroom. Uh, escaped to the newsroom because I was kind of on a plateau in the Press Herald Sports Department. I didn't think I was really going to be able to go anywhere in sports unless I left Maine. And I knew I didn't want to leave Maine because <laughs> I was about to get married and I wanted to start a family and all that. So I went to the newsroom and, you know, did that for the rest of my career, which was also very rewarding, but it also allowed me you know, to have a more balanced life. Because sports writing is hard. Um, and that was the thing I realized in those three years. You know, you really don't have another life. It is your life. And, and that's part of what I admire so much about these women who have stuck it out and made it their career. Yeah, you made that clear in the book. It sounds really tough, or it sounded really tough. Well, it, it was, and it still is. And I guess sure. I wanted to know, you know, how they did it, you know, how they persevered. Had you known the women that you interviewed prior to, to interviewing them for the book? Um, I knew Leslie Visser. I knew mm -hmm. Jackie McMullen, who wrote the foreword. And, oh, I might be forgetting somebody else that I knew. Um, those two were principally the ones who, you know, I, I had kept in touch with and, and kind of knew about their careers. Mm-hmm. And what was it like doing the research? I mean, talking to all these women and, and having them look back on their experiences in the industry early on, especially since, you know, not all the experiences were terrific. It was, oh, I had a blast talking to these women. I mean, you know, they, they all have very good memories and they all had incredibly good stories to tell. 
The first person I interviewed was Melissa Lutke, who was involved in the court case that opened the New York Yankees locker room to women for the first time in 1978. So obviously her stories were good stories to tell. Uh, the locker room chapter, I think, really provided the most interesting stories just because of everything the women went through. You know, even after most sports, most leagues had declared that the locker rooms should be open to women, that didn't mean that the people in the locker room wanted to have them there. And so there were, you know, lots of things, lots of indignities that they had to suffer, you know, to get their stories. Yeah, I want to talk about the locker rooms because, it, you know, it took up a whole chapter. And also it just seemed like such a crucial part of the history of the female sports journalism. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, you know, men had been going into locker rooms probably since the late 1940s. So athletes were used to having them in there. But 1960s, 19, even 1970s, women just were not welcome. I mean, a lot of people didn't like it on moral grounds. A lot of guys complained, you know, I can't walk around naked in the locker room with women in here. <laughs> and, and then there was, you know, there was a lot of misogyny. Men just didn't think women, not only didn't think they belonged there, but didn't think they could do a good job. So, so there was, you know, that was the beginning of the struggle, and, and women had to prove themselves over and over and over again. And actually, a lot of women left sports, um, sports writing, because of that. So, I mean, I thought what, what was interesting about the locker room, the whole aspect of getting into the locker room is, you know, like, on the surface, it seems very simple. Like, oh, I want to get into the locker room, and like, who cares if you can or can't? It doesn't matter that much. But the truth is, it matters a ton. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yes, it does matter a ton. You know, during COVID, when nobody could get into the locker rooms, I talked to a lot of sports writers, male and female, and they talked about the fact that they just didn't feel like they had the rapport, especially with the newer athletes, younger athletes, that they had had when they were able to go into the locker room. Because, you know, despite the I don't know, despite the atmosphere in the locker room, it's a great place to establish rapport with, with athletes, you know, to just, you know, you'll see a picture of their family in their locker and you'll ask them about it and, and suddenly they're a human being and suddenly you're a human being to them. And it really helps, I think, the relationship a lot. You can also break some good stories in the locker room. Certainly when Back in the steroid era, well, actually before the steroid era was called the steroid era, a reporter for the AP found, you know, a bottle of pills in Mark McGuire's locker, and he asked him about it. And McGuire told him, oh, these are, uh, I think it was Andro. Anyway, it was not banned by Major League Baseball at the time, but it had been banned by the NFL and, and other leagues. So he wrote about it, and, and that actually started the steroid scandal. And, you know, it got the ball rolling in terms of, of steroids being banned in wow. baseball. And it might not have happened if he wasn't in the locker room, you know, looking at this bottle of pills and wondering what the heck it was. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, you know, I think those those are probably the primary reasons, establishing relationships and, and just being able to, to see what's going on and maybe find out, you know, find a story. A woman that I talked to was in the locker room one day, and she noticed this guy's locker. I think he was a football player. She noticed his incredible wardrobe. 
I mean, <laughs> and she said, I really want to write a, a story about your wardrobe. So he said, okay. Wow. And, you know, it was a great feature story. And, and again, she wouldn't have gotten it if, um, if she weren't in the locker room looking at his locker stuffed with hats and coats sure. and everything else. You also include a ton of really <laughs> sort of fantastic stories of women waiting outside before they were given free access mm-hmm. and just like waiting and waiting and waiting and, you know, like their deadline is ticking off and stuff like that. That happened, well, yeah, that happened for a long time because, like I said, even though some locker rooms were open, others weren't. And sometimes you didn't know until you got there. Mm-hmm. I mean, Jackie McMullen tells a story about thinking she was going to be able to get into, it was a college locker room after an NCAA tournament game, I think. There was a, I think, I think it might have been a Catholic school, and I think it might have been a Catholic priest standing outside the locker room, and it was like, no way she's going to get in there, <laughs> even though other college locker rooms had been open to her. Yeah. Um, you know, Leslie Visser and Christine Brennan talked about standing out in the parking lot in the rain waiting for football players to come out. And I mean, that's the other thing. By the time they get out you know, to the parking lot, they don't want to talk about the game anymore, and they don't have a lot of you know, fresh quotes to give them. Yeah, I mean, they're also coming down from that adrenaline rush. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So what's the locker room situation now? Is it free access to everybody and everybody's comfortable? Well, I haven't been in a locker room for a long time. (laughs) The last locker room I was in was actually a women's locker room, and it was a college women's basketball tournament. So they're pretty strict now about how long, you know, they give the players, I think, maybe a half an hour to get dressed and all that, and then reporters can go in. And in the meantime, they have, you know, the podium. Sure, sure. The podium situation where the coach and a couple of players will talk to reporters until it's time to go into the locker room. I want to go back a little bit and ask, why, why is history important? Like, why is it important that we remember this stuff? Oh, that's a really good question. I don't know. You know, having been a teacher, I think it's just important to know what came before. I think, I think these women are so fascinating that young people who are thinking about being journalists really should know the history. And I think anybody um, who's interested in women's issues, you know, this is a facet of women's, you know, gender issues that people probably don't think about a lot. And yet, in some ways, well, like harassment, for example, I think, you know, women sports writers were, had to endure a lot more harassment than, than any other women in any workplace. Well, except maybe for, you know, actresses in Hollywood. But I mean, think about it. They could possibly be harassed by the players. They could be harassed by team officials. They could be harassed by people in their own sports department. And they could be harassed by fans on Twitter. And, and they are harassed right. um, almost incessantly by fans on Twitter. So, you know, the Me Too movement, that's one of the chapters, you know, finally came to sports. And I think as part of the history, it's important to realize that that, that was one of the big things that women were fighting. I totally agree with you about history. And I love the history of women's sports and, and gender history sort of throughout but I sometimes think I'm just being a crabby old lady and that, you know, younger people don't care. Well, you know, I just went to a convention of the Association for Women in Sports Media. And I, I, 
I have been a member for several years, but my book had just come out. So obviously I was talking to people about my book and it was the young people who seemed really the most interested in it. Well, that's um, they really, yeah, they really wanted to know what, what, you know, things had been like. And there's also a couple chapters about current events that I think they probably found interesting. But um, I do think young people still care. I know when I wrote my basketball book, I was still, was I still teaching at the time? Maybe not. I was coaching, though. And my basketball players were very interested in it. You know, they wanted to know about the women who had, you know, kind of paved the way for them. Women's basketball has a fascinating history. Well, it really does. Yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty amazing, you know, how women persevered to play for so long. Yeah. So one of the reasons that I found the locker room situation really interesting is this idea that sports is a man's world and women are just sort of showing up, you know, shoving themselves in and they couldn't possibly understand sports anyway because they just don't know. And, you know, like you talked about that a lot and how they were sort of seen as upsetting the order of things. Mm -hmm. it, it just, I mean, it's hard to fathom at this point. I mean, I guess not. It's, well, it, it's hard to fathom now because women's sports has grown so much. I mean, look at all the attention to Serena recently um, as she ended her tennis career. And I think it is because of the growth of women's sports that women's sports writers and journalists and media people have been more and more accepted as people who do know what they're talking about. I mean, probably 80% of female sports writers played sports growing up. And I think that that goes a long way towards making the male sports world accept them. Take Doris Burke, for example, I wrote a chapter about Doris in the book, and I wasn't even aware of her basketball career, but she, she was an amazing athlete, probably still is, and she has been accepted far and wide as, as an authority of, you know, in professional basketball circles because she knew the game growing up and, and she knew how to talk about it. Jackie McMullen, the same thing. She played basketball in high school and college and really understands it. I'm glad you mentioned women's sports because, I mean, most of the book is about women sports journalists who are writing about men's sports. You know, like, how are you thinking things are going to change now that there are more female sports to cover? And, yeah, let's start there. Well, I do think that a lot of media outlets are trying to diversify. They do want to get more women onto their staffs. Economics being what it is, that's tough to do because there isn't a lot of hiring going on, and yet there's all, always turnover. And I think a lot of newspapers and, and broadcast outlets, ESPN especially, have committed themselves to hiring more women. And I think the fact that there are more women's sports to cover, that, that well, there have always been women's sports, but that they are covering women's sports more and more gives women the opportunity, more opportunities that, than they might otherwise have had. I mean, another thing I noticed in the book was that there was this discussion of sort of this sports fan, and that too was always considered man's territory. You know, the mm -hmm. idea that women would actually, you know, other than the journalists that you're talking about, would actually be interested in watching sports seemed really foreign. Mm-hmm. And that has changed a lot. I mean, I don't remember the statistic. I wish I did, but the NFL did a survey, and I think it was, you know, 
maybe 40, 60 in terms of females watching the NFL. You know, I mean, that doesn't surprise me at all because sports has become such a big thing in our culture. It isn't just about the the box score anymore, although statistics are a huge thing uh, <laughs> for a lot of people. I think the way sports are written about has, has brought more women uh, into the fandom because there are a lot more stories about people's lives, baseball players' lives, you know, football players' lives outside of football. They've become celebrities in many ways, and, and I think that both men and women, you know, no matter what you're what brings you to sports, I think the different kinds of stories that you encounter when you get there keep a lot of people interested. I'm glad you brought that up because I've always been curious about the up close and personal because, you know, I grew up during that time when that sort of switch was happening. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And in the book, you wrote that in 1974, CBS hired Jane Chastain for the mm -hmm. NFL broadcast team. And, you know, this was early on in the days of women journalists in sports TV. And you wrote that she helped transform broadcast from scores only segment, as you mentioned, mm -hmm. to programs spotlighting personal stories and human angles. So can we talk a little bit about that, that switch and sort of, you know, the stereotype assumption that men like the stats and the women like the personal stories and sort of how that's evolved, maybe? It has evolved. I mean, there are a lot of men who'd be really upset if they heard me saying that all men think about his stats, because that's not true. I mean, there's so many good male sports writers out there who, you know, who really know how to get to the heart of a story. But I think, you know, I think the evolution, and again, it was back in that time, the 70s, when sports was expanding, and so you had to get beyond the box scores. You know, you had to find different angles. And I think women were good at that. I think that helped, you know, them get and keep jobs because they they were able to establish rapport with athletes and athletes maybe were even more open to them. I mean, Mary Garber, the pioneer that, that nobody knew about for at least 20 years, she started writing for the Winston-Salem Journal in, I think, 1950 or 1948. Anyway, she, she had this amazing way of, of establishing rapport with the athletes that she was writing about, and, and they opened up to her in, in ways that they maybe, you know, didn't with the male writers. And, or maybe it was the male writers didn't really want to get into it. They just wanted to get the story done. <laughs> you know? Sometimes I think about, you know, what does the female fan want and what does the male fan want? And is it different? Do you have any perspective of that? And maybe how it's changed over time also? Uh-huh. Well, I can only use myself as an example. And I know that when I get up in the morning, if I haven't been able to stay up <laughs> and watch, you know, the Red Sox, or, or even I missed the Seattle Storm game the other night, you know, Sue Bird's last game. And so the first thing I wanted to do, obviously, was find out who won. Right just like anybody else. But then I wanted to find out, well, how did it happen? You know, and, and, you know, what were the stories behind the score? What were the stories behind the game? And I think, I think that's probably, maybe that's typical of women. You know, they don't want to just read the game story. They want to read the other stories that might be written about the players or the situation. You know, there's a lot of drama in sports these days. I think 
probably everybody likes that. So I don't know. You know, I, I can't speak for men. I don't know what men really, what they do when they get up in the morning. You know, what do they read? I'm not sure. That's a really good question. I'll have to start asking that one. <laughs> right. I think I think about that, or I know I think about that because, you know, I'm just wondering how the field is going to evolve and if we're going to learn anything. You know, like often I think that we take how we've covered men's sports and just try to translate it directly to women's sports. And I'm not convinced that that works, but mm -hmm. I'm also not convinced that this like radical shift is necessary. Well, I mean, there's, there's a danger in trying to make it too different. Exactly. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking of Serena as a good example. Um, she obviously was the greatest player of all time. I mean, I didn't actually watch Margaret Court play, but I don't think I have to to say that. And a lot of the coverage of Serena is about what she wears to the match. Right, right. And she actually, I don't know, maybe that's that's part of what women want because she does actually promote that. In fact, I read a story yesterday. It was she had a scrapbook of all the outfits she's worn over the years, and I thought it was fascinating. I really did. So that's okay, but, you know, let's not make that the focus because then you get away from, you know, how hard she's trained, how hard it was to come back from, from being pregnant and, and a tough pregnancy. I think, you know, I think that maybe you want to get into women's lives where women are willing to let you into their lives in a way that men athletes might not be. And so, so that's a good thing. But, you know, I think writers need to be careful not to make it, you know, sexist. I mean, not to be stereotypical. Right. I mean, I think the Serena example is a great one because, yeah, I love talking about her fashion because that's so important to her, but I want that to be something and the other stuff mm -hmm. about her sport and her training. Exactly. I mean, I'd love to know how how she trains, trained. I'd love to know all of that. And, and they don't focus on that enough, I don't think. I love that you are here listening to another terrific sporty woman tell her story. If you aren't already on the list, I encourage you to sign up for the Hear Her Sports newsletter at hearhersports.com. Many listeners are already signed up and really enjoy reading and finding even more by clicking the links. You will find special offers from sponsors, of course, with the links that take you exactly where you want to go. Mostly, the newsletter is where I write some thoughts on the latest guest and what we talked about in the episode. All the conversations stay with me, so in the newsletter, I'm able to relate those thoughts to a bigger picture of women's sports and to everything I've learned from the more than 100 women I've spoken to in the last five years, producing the podcast and other audio projects. Each individual story is important. Equally important is where the stories fit into the context and history of female athletes and women's sports. I'd love to have you join us. It comes out only every other week, so enough to be engaging, but not too much. Sign up at hearhersports.com. Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey and we want to hear from you. The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. I know most people don't like ads, 
But this is one of the only ways our shows make money and help keep their lights on. We promise it will only take a few minutes, but the impact on our podcasts will be tremendous. As a token of our appreciation, we'll randomly select one lucky participant each month to win an exclusive merchandise package from Evergreen Podcasts. Head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show. And now let's get back to Joanne Lannan, author of Who Let Them In? Pathbreaking Women in Sports Journalism. Well, certainly a big takeaway from the book, and we talked a little bit about this before, but I'd like to talk about it again, is the, you know, like what a toll the harassment and difficulties that the early women had to deal with and just, my gosh, how tough they were. Yeah, they were tough. I think, you know, the the two best examples of that are um, Lisa Saxon, who wrote... Uh, well, she wrote for a couple of different newspapers out in L.A. And her locker room trials and tribulations were incredible. She thought about quitting several times. I mean, you know, I don't... When somebody sticks their penis in your face and says, you know, what would you like to do with this? That's that's pretty... It's pretty hard to go up to the press box and do your job, I think. And yet she did it. You know, I mean, she she time and time again just tried to ignore that stuff and do her job. Uh, what did she tell me? She would, it, it, it's in the book, but she had this playlist that she would play on her eight-track tape yes. in her car on the way, <laughs> on the way to, this, to the uh, stadium. Yeah, that's and, great. And, uh, of course, one of the songs was I Am Woman. Um, <laughs> but she, you know, she just really, every day was a, was a trial for her. She had some, you know, Vince Scully was one person who, really encouraged her and I think helped her to persevere, which is kind of cool. And then the other one was Lisa Olson, who in 1991, I believe, filed suit against the New England Patriots for their harassment of her in the locker room. I mean, they were just incredibly rude. I mean, there's no other word for it, but it was also, you know, sexual harassment because, you know, you're surrounded by these naked guys who are making you feel like you don't belong there and management is standing at the door and, and, you know, basically making you feel like you deserve it. And yet she talked about it. You know, she wrote columns about it and she sued, well, the paper sued the, the, the Patriots and the NFL did an investigation and things really changed a lot after that. That was also around the same time as Anita Hill was testifying against Clarence Thomas. So I think that, to be honest, helped change, you know, the playing field, if you will. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned some shocking examples, and I think that's what I took away was like, well, there were three things. (laughs) One, just, you know, some of the examples just were just, I mean, it would be hard to dream them up. And then how often they were happening. I mean, it was just like this constant barrage of every day. That was your job is dealing with this crap. And then also, you know, I think we forget that that kind of stuff really impacts how you can do your job. And so these women were having to do their jobs, but they were being silenced. They were, you know, like being harassed all the time. They, you know, couldn't be confrontational. So they couldn't ask the hard questions. I mean, it was just fascinating to see what they were having to deal with. 
Right. There was a, a writer out in Arizona who told me that uh, she didn't ask tough questions because she didn't want to, you know, create a stir. She never wore perfume into the locker room because she didn't want to, you know, draw any attention whatsoever to herself. Well, the book came out this year, but it has been out for a while. You know, like looking back, now that it's been written and you've had time to reflect and talk about it, I mean, do you have any thoughts about it as you do that? I would think that it would be a little bit difficult to hear those stories over and over. I mean, yes, some of it is very hopeful, but some of it is like, oh my God, this is depressing. <laughs> well, I think I have come away with the feeling that I thought I would, and that is that, wow, these women, they had such chutzpah, you know, they, they, they are my heroes because of what they endured. And, and, and I'm also, you know, just really, really hopeful about the future because these women now, especially the younger women, are willing to speak out. They don't, you know, they don't take any, any, um, indignities, I guess you could say, without pushing back. And that's just, and they're writing about it too. You know, they, they write about their own harassment. They write about the harassment of other writers and broadcasters. And, and so uh, things, things I think are changing for the better. The Twitter trolls, I don't know, I guess you never really get rid of those unless you get rid of Twitter. But um, otherwise, I think the future is really really, really hopeful for women. And they have each other now in ways that the pioneers didn't. I mean, the pioneers, especially those who toiled before the internet was, was a big thing, really didn't even know each other existed. And now they really do have each other's backs. And, you know, they'll say, hey, you know, I used to write for the whatever paper. You're going there. Watch out for so-and-so. So that's the kind of thing that there's a lot of camaraderie. Um, there's a lot of support. The Association for Women in Sports Media is, is just an incredible organization that really, you know, you come away from one of their conventions really charged up about, you know, the future for women. But you did end the book with talking about the future. And, you know, like one of the most recent reports or surveys that you mentioned still has the number of women in sports journalism is, you know, around 15%. It's really amazing, isn't it, how low it is? Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's higher than the coverage of women's sports, which is yeah. at like 5%. I know. I know. It just is amazing. And I think, um, and that's going to change over time. I have no idea how long it's going to take. Because, again, the economic situation we're in right now really dampens progress when you get more women in editorial positions, you know, in the quote unquote, you know, power positions, they are going to promote more women, you know, search farther and wider for women, you know, for their staffs. And I think, I think you'll see those numbers go up, but it's, but it's going to be slow because, well, because, you know, men's sports is, is huge now. And certainly there are plenty of guys out there who, who are good sports writers and good broadcasters. And, you know, you can't just ignore them completely just because you want to have more women on your staff. So we'll see what happens. <laughs> you included a quote that I absolutely love by Melissa Ludke, who worked in the 70s and 80s. And in 2018, looking back on her experiences, she said, I began to understand as time went by that it was going to be a longer process. And by that, I mean, going into court and affirming a right what has to happen after that is a buy-in. 
a societal buy-in of cultural change. Mm -hmm. Where do you think we are with that? Well, you know what I think is really helping a lot is, um, well, the chapter that I wrote about play-by-play announcers. You see a lot of publicity, I guess you could call it, when a woman does a big game. Like, I guess, recently... Apple TV did a baseball game. They do Friday night baseball games. And they had an all-women crew. The play-by-play announcer, the color announcer, the producer, the person out in the, on the field interviewing people. Everybody was female. And I guess it's, you could call it a stunt, but I don't think it is. I think it's an acknowledgement that there's a lot of good women out there and, and we've got to find places for them. And, and they're doing a good job. They're doing a great job. So I think that's going to you know, create a lot more visibility and, and things are going to just naturally, I think they're actually ramping up. Maybe that's too, too positive a word, but I, th- but I think that things are changing and I think that we'll hit an inflection point, maybe a tipping point that we haven't hit yet. But I think it's coming. Yeah, I mean, you talk a lot about in the book, uh, sort of listener perception of women's mm-hmm. voices. And that's mm-hmm. such an interesting thing. And I love that you mentioned about, you know, like a lot of these guys think that their mom is talking to them. When <laughs> they're, it's just, I mean, it's so absurd. Yeah, go clean your room. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but I think you're right. Yeah. Well, you know what's funny to me, um, and I maybe shouldn't say this, but my sister and I, we're big Red Sox fans, and this year, well, because they lost their longtime color analyst, Jerry Remy, they've been auditioning all these people through the role. So my sister and I will get together It's like, well, what did you think of him? Oh, I hated his voice. Oh, my God, it was awful. (laughs) (laughs) And so I understand that that is something that if you're not used to somebody's voice, then that takes some time. And for women, you know, men aren't used to listening to their voice, no matter how deep it is. I mean, Kate Scott, who now works in Philadelphia, she has, an, you know, probably the best female announcing voice that I've ever heard. But it still takes time to get used to it. It's unfortunate. <laughs> it is. It really is. But it's yeah. human nature, I guess. We talked a little bit about it, but what do you think that women offer to sports journalism, sports broadcasting? I mean, why is it important that we're part of the picture? Well, this is going to sound silly, but it's important that we're part of the picture because we want to be part of the picture. You know, the dedication. I didn't know who to dedicate this book to, but I finally decided to to dedicate it to all the little girls who dream big dreams and don't take no for an answer. I might cry. <laughs> <laughs> I might too. Because if you want to do something, you darn well should be able to do it. That's great. A lesson that I've learned doing this podcast for X number of years is that so many of the female athletes I speak to feel this gigantic responsibility to the next generation of athletes. Mm-hmm. And you talked about that in your book. And, you know, of course, on one hand, that's fantastic, you know, sort of this progression generation to generation. On the other hand, I feel the burden of that responsibility when I'm talking to the female athletes. Mm -hmm. You know, how do the women journalists that you spoke to, how do they feel about it? Well, I think, you know, most of them do feel a great responsibility to, to the journalists that are coming after them. I think, well, Jackie McMullen 
she was interviewed several times after she decided to retire last year. And one of the things she said in most of her interviews is that it was time to step aside. It was time to let this, you know, incredible group of young women behind me, you know, have their day. And I think I, I really thought that was interesting. I really thought that kind of summed it up. And Christine Brennan is another example. You know, she's still at the top of her game. But she feels she sponsors a couple of scholarships for young journalists, young women journalists, and does a lot of outreach, you know, mentors a lot of young women journalists and men too. But she really is is, I think, very much about that, about supporting other women and making sure that they have, you know, the opportunities they need to succeed. Since you're a basketball fan, how's the WNBA doing? What's your impression? Oh, well, you know, I think they're doing so well um, because they've finally figured out how to market their stars and they're putting more games on TV. Mm-hmm. You know, if you build it, they will come. I mean, that's that's just what it's all about. I'm not sure what that impetus was to put all the tournament games on TV and a lot of regular season games too. But I know, I you know, I hear a lot of people talking about the WNBA that never talked about it before just because it's there. So I think it's going to grow, maybe not to the level of the NBA because, well, for a lot of reasons, but, you know, one of them being it's a summer league. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. But um, but I think it is going to grow. You know, certainly I've read enough about the early days of the NBA to know that, you know, they were staying in really crappy hotels right into the 1960s. And it took a long, long time, you know, for, for the public to to make the NBA what it is today. We forget about that. We do forget about that. Can fans or listeners do anything to help any of this? Well... Yeah, I mean, fans going to the games certainly helps, I think. If, if something's a sellout for, you know, 10 games in a row, I think editors and media people are going to take notice. It's so hard sometimes to predict because, you know, which came first, the chicken or the egg in terms of, of you know, why something becomes popular. I think about that in, in terms of basketball a lot because it seemed like, just all of a sudden, women's basketball was a big deal. And it took, it took a kind of a celebrity team, I guess you could call it, Immaculata College, the Mighty Max back in the 1970s. They were the darlings of the New York media, and everybody started paying attention to them. And then subsequently, they started paying attention to women's basketball in general. And then along came Pat Summit, and along came Gino Ariema, and, and it just kind of snowballed from there. So I think something has to capture the public's imagination. To me, it's going to be interesting to see if, if you know, all the hoopla around Serena is going to translate into more interest in women's tennis and I think it will, because there are an awful lot of young women's tennis players that are fun to watch. But on the other hand, you get soccer every four years, and everybody's in love with the women's soccer team, and then do they go to those you know, league games? Not in droves, certainly. Um, probably somebody's going to be mad at me for saying that. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but, you know, the, the interest kind of wanes. Right. 
once it's the hard Olympics to f- is over. I was going to mention the Olympics, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's hard to counter, you know, the support of NFL, baseball, basketball, hockey, mm-hmm. and bring something new in. It is hard. I, you know, a big thing about, well, football, I think, I think the betting that goes on around the game um, has a lot to do with the way it's promoted, the interest in it from just the casual fan. Uh, you know, everybody's in a football pool in the fall, and so everybody's watching the games. Right. Huh, interesting. You know, I don't think many people are betting on women's games. But again, which came first, you know, right. the, bet- the betting or the interest in the game? So. Right. We should start some soccer betting. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> we could. <laughs> what are you working on now? Uh, I am not working on anything. I'm just working on promoting this book. Uh, I think I'm probably going to take a break until the beginning of next year and then decide maybe what my next project will be. You know, I would love to do, but it'll probably not be possible. I I would love to do something about women playing overseas. Mm. Because, well, because of Brittany Griner, obviously, it's become a big deal. But women have actually been doing that forever. I mean, I remember when I was with the Press Herald in the early 1980s, there were high school players that I was covering who, as soon as they, well, they had good college careers, as soon as their college career was over, they went overseas to play. The woman who coaches our senior basketball team played in Ireland for I don't know how many years, but you know she, her team won a championship, and, and she's still in touch with those people in Ireland. And so there's, I know there's a lot of good stories about you know, women playing overseas, why they did it, and, and what they got out of it. I think that would be a good something. Yeah, I do too. Any thoughts about why you know, other countries are supporting women's sports the, in the way that they are, and we're not able to do that here? Well, you know, we all know about Russia and how the oligarchs, with all the money, they just want to promote, you know, their products, and, and they do it through the team. And that's another question that I would answer if I wrote about it. You know, why why is it so easy to give these players a million dollars, whereas the WNBA can only give them, I think the maximum salary is 300000 Yeah, it's crazy. It is. Before we wrap up, is there a part of the book that you wanted to talk about that we didn't get to? Well, the only person we didn't talk about was Susan Waldman. You know, she's, she's on, well, she's only known in New York but her, her career is iconic. It really is. And I think that for people in broadcasting, especially play-by-play, you know, women, they all know her. It's like they're, they're a club. She's so supportive of all of them. And, and her journey has been amazing just because she didn't start out as a sports broadcaster. She started out as a singer on Broadway and decided that when she didn't get a part because they said her voice wasn't right for the part, she decided to switch gears. And, and the other things she knew a lot about and that she loved was sports. And so, you know, midlife, she embarked on this career, which, which has been an amazing career. So I think that's, that's one of the chapters that I really enjoyed. I certainly enjoyed talking to her because she's, she's quite a character. And, and like I said, everybody loves her. I'm just, I'm in awe of all of those women. 
I mean, I just, I don't, I just don't think that I could have handled what they were handling. It's, it's really fantastic. Well, I sometimes wonder if I could have, you know, if I had stuck with it. I, I haven't answered that question. I suppose if I really didn't feel like I needed to stay in Maine and I, you know, love news just as much as sports, I guess. I, I do. I wonder how I would have done. Because, I, I mean, I only had a couple of locker room incidents, and they were tame, so tame compared to, to what these women had to go through. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, they are amazing to me. They're my heroes. <laughs> me too. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much. It's been great talking to you. Well, it's been great talking to you too. I really, really had fun. Thanks. And that is it for another great episode of Hear Her Sports. Thank you, Joanne, for writing Who Let Them In about the pathbreaking women in sports journalism. The women in the book are incredible and worth reading about. You can order your copy from the Hear Her Sports bookshop page at hearhersports.com books. A heartfelt thank you to all of our special Patreon and Buy Me a Coffee supporters for their continued backing of the show. I'm so grateful that each one of them took the time to express their appreciation for the podcast by signing up as a patron or by sending me a virtual coffee. It means a lot because Hear Her Sports is a listener-supported show, and we couldn't do it without you. If you are not a supporter and would like to be, go to patreon.com slash hearher or to the easy-to-use buymeacoffee.com slash hearher. Visit the show notes page at hearhersports.com for links to some of the women Joanne mentioned, her other books, and a link to a movie based on the story of the Immaculata College Mighty Max women's basketball team. I always love hearing from you. Send me an email to elizabeth at hearhersports.com. Find us on all the socials, including Twitter at hearhersports. If social media is not your thing, definitely be sure to sign up for the newsletter at hearhersports.com. It comes out every other week and includes some of my thoughts from the most recent episode and how I see it connecting to the rest of the episodes and to ongoing issues in women's sports. And until next time, bye-bye. Women's Running Stories, where we explore the intersection between running and life. Because every woman who is committed to a running journey has a story to tell, and this is where you'll find those stories. I am host and producer Cherie Louise Turner. I'm a 53-year-old runner, and together with original music by musician and runner Cormac O'Regan, we bring these inspirational stories to life. Please join us to fuel your adventures.